Welcome into another edition of NBA Sound System. With you today, I'm Micah Adams alongside Scott Rafferty. Scott, how's it going, my friend? Given everything that's going on right now, I am doing well. How about you? I'm good, man. Washing my hands a ton, staying inside, trying to stay healthy. Hope everyone out there is staying safe. Uh, Look, Scott, we don't know when the NBA is going to come back, but when it does, when it does, there's a lot of big-name, big-time rookies that have stood out so far this season. So we're just going to take some time today to go through some of the specific reasons why some of the biggest names are bringing so much promise to today's league. So why don't you kick us off? Where do you want to start? Let's start with Zion. Zion Williamson. Uh, He was the biggest name, biggest rookie coming into this season. He missed a lot of the season, unfortunately, after undergoing surgery on his knee. But we've now seen him play for 19 games. And those 19 games, to say the least, have been incredibly impressive. He's averaging 20, just under 24 points per game, seven rebounds, two assists. I think he had the, the longest streak in NBA history by a rookie of 20 point per game uh, scoring. And he has the Pelicans a few games back of the eighth seed in the West. And he's just doing things that we just haven't seen before from a rookie or, or not often. I mean, the numbers that he's putting up, if you just look at players who have averaged 20 points per game on 55% shooting from the field, it's just him and Shaq in NBA history. And yeah. I'm sure we will talk about, you know, who we think he compares well to and everything like that. But he's just such a unique talent. He really is unique. And I think, uh, you know, the, the thing that jumps off when you, when you just watch 30 seconds of a Pelicans game is about all it takes is all the attention uh, that he gets. He gets the ball and it's like five sets of eyes on the defense just immediately turn and face towards whatever he's doing. It quite literally happened on the very first play in his very first game. Derek Favors gets a wide open layup because everyone's concerned about Zion. And that's before he went on to to average the, the 23 and a half points a game. But specific to how he's getting it done, what is it to you that stands out about his ability so far to be so imp- impactful and powerful? I think it's incredible just how efficiently he's scoring considering he is, what, six foot six. So he's undersized for a power forward or at center, which is what his, his skill set is. And he basically is not a threat outside of the restricted area. I mean, there's been a lot of attention paid to his three-point shot. He's made six threes so far in his NBA career. Four of those came in his first game. He kind of had an out-of-body experience in that game. But you look beyond that. He's two for 10 from mid-range, and he's seven for 20 in the paint, non in the restricted area. So if you I can't, combine- I can't believe I can't believe that you had those two specific numbers typed out because I had the exact same two <laughs> ready to go in on. <laughs> I mean, you combine all those, he's 15 for 43 outside of the restricted area, which is 34.9%. That's not good. So we're talking about a guy who's already averaging nearly 30 points per 36 minutes, basically just being able to score inside the paint. And I mean, we've got to assume he's only going to improve from this point forward. It, it's just, it's, it is remarkable how easily he's scoring already. And he's doing it against, he's, he's being guarded a lot by centers. And there's just not that many guys who have been able to slow him down. Like he had his way with Hassan Whiteside. The only guys that we can really point to that I think he did sort of struggle against was Brooke Lopez, who is a defensive player of the year candidate. Giannis. <laughs> how, did I, how did I know he'd be the first name you'd go to here? Incredible. Um, Giannis as well, another defensive player of the year candidate. And I also think, you know, LeBron and Anthony Davis played well against him. And Maxi Kleber, I thought, did really well against him. But even then, in those games, he still put up big numbers. And it's just, it is incredible how easily he's already scoring. 
Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of the uh, trepidation about Zion coming into the NBA was, look, he he tossed around college players like he was like the the varsity senior playing, forget the JV team. It looked at times in college like he was a, a high school senior playing against middle schoolers out there. But it really has his ability to finish uh, through contact in and around the paint has really translated immediately to, to the point. I mean, he's already averaging 17.3 points in the paint per game. That's second in the league behind only Giannis, who, uh, you know, is, is probably going to end up winning the MVP award. So it's like right from the jump, everything that Zion did at Duke, he's doing with the Pelicans. And it doesn't look any harder than it did when he was playing, you know, forget now it was Wake Forest in Miami and Carolina. And now it's the Lakers and the Clippers and the Mavericks. And it just doesn't matter. And the, what he's doing is already having a tremendous impact on the Pelicans. You look, again, it's only 19 games, so it's a pretty small sample size. But they're outscoring opponents by 10.4 points per 100 possessions with him on the court. With him on the bench, they get outscored by 3.5 points per 100. So that's a swing of nearly yeah. 14 points per 100 with their rookie on the court. I mean, and that's, that's all-star, that's superstar, that's MVP-level kind of impact. Again, small sample size. But what we've seen from him already is incredibly impressive. And that's translated into him having, it's not, it's not a perfect stat, but his offensive real plus minus by ESPN, he ranks 13th in the league right now between Devin Booker and Paul George. Um, and obviously it remains to be seen if he, can, if he can continue playing at this rate when guys are more aware of his strengths and weaknesses. He also has some issues defensively that he's going to have to overcome and that could hold him back a little bit. But offensively, he's just so dominant already. The the impact on winning thing to me is, is I think maybe even more so than the physicality and the inside finishing, those, those leap off the screen. But then when you take a step back and you really look at the impact that he has on on positive basketball on a team level, rookies just don't do that. So right now, you brought up ESPN's real plus minus. He's 24th in the league in that. Not not anything that's that's probably eye eye opening or is gonna gonna make a headline anywhere. But everyone remembers how good Luka Doncic was last year's rookie. He was 86th. Okay, uh, Zion is probably in the midst of the most dominant big man rookie season since Carl Anthony Towns back in the 2015-16 season. Towns was great. He was like an 18 and 10, almost two blocks, shot over 54%. He was 224th in the entire league. Zion is 200 spots higher than Carl Anthony Towns was as a rookie. And that just goes to show the impact that he has. And look, you talked about some of the on-off court numbers. One of the reasons that I was so bullish on the Pelicans entering the season was the potential for them to throw so many different high-impact players on the floor. And through a, you know they had so many injuries, not just to Zion, but Drew Holiday was out. Derek Favors was out. Lonzo Ball missed some time. Brandon Ingram missed a couple times. If you look at just since Zion Williamson made his debut... They have, there are 37 different five-man lineups across the entire league that have played at least 80 minutes. New Orleans lineup with Zion, Drew, Lonzo, Brandon Ingram, and Derek Favors outscoring opponents by 26.3 points per 100 possessions. It is by far the best five-man lineup in the, in the NBA since Zion made his debut. I, I didn't watch him a ton in college. I, I only caught him for a few games, so I didn't know that much about Zion coming into the season. But I watched him throughout preseason. I watched him every single game he played. And one of the things that jumped out to me and one of the reasons that I was so high on him coming into the season 
was that he just he 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 scores so easily, and you can kind of put any sort of player around him, and he's just gonna manufacture points for himself and others because one, he has so much gravity when he gets into the paint that he sucks defenses in and it creates open shots for others. But two, he's already just such a good cutter. You can put him in the dunker spot. You can put him in the pick and roll. He's excellent in transition. The way he moves for a guy his size, I think he was like the third heaviest player in the league coming into the season in a six foot six frame. And the way that he moves up and down the court and how he can get up and everything like that, he gets a ton of putbacks. He's historically good already at, at rebounding his own misses and things like that. So although there's going to be, you know, the Pelicans are going to have to surround him with ideally like a rim protecting three point shooting center. You want as much shooting around him and everything like that. He's still a guy who can just score so easily. And I think, look, I, I was going to mention that, you know, the, the building the pieces around him is, is certainly going to be of the utmost importance moving forward. But the guys they have there right now, uh, they, they fit pretty well. Like Derek Favors isn't perfect. Uh, but gets the job done, certainly. Brandon Ingram is a guy that you still throw the ball to. And one of the nice things about Zion Williamson is he can get his without necessarily having to have everything run through him, right? He like he's he's very good off the ball. He's a great offensive rebounder. He's a great lob target. He runs in transition. And oh, by the way, that running in transition portion of it, perfect when your team's point guard is Lonzo Ball, who nobody passes ahead and looks for those quick hitters quite like Lonzo. Uh, I talked about how that five-man lineup was uh, had the best net rating since Zion made his debut. They're doing it while also playing at a pace that would rank first in the league and assisting that that group is assisting on about 70% of their made buckets, which would also rank first in the league. So it's not just that they've been dominant when sharing the floor. It's also the way in which they've been dominant while sharing the floor. Um, let me put it out to you. Is there anyone immediately that comes to mind when you think Zion Williamson? The ones I think that gets thrown around the most is probably Charles Barkley, but I wanted to put it to you. Like, Is there another one that makes sense to you? It's interesting. A few weeks ago, uh, the Bucks came to Charlotte, and it was my first chance really seeing Giannis play live in person. And when I was watching Giannis, I kind of thought to myself that like peak Zion I feel like is going to score in similar ways that Giannis does right now. When we talk about a guy who lives in transition, um, can score for putbacks, but even the way that he manufactures his own points, he's a guy who gets the ball in the post a lot, around the elbows, a couple dribbles here and there, he's at the basket. I, I don't know if I would say that he is the next Giannis because part of what makes Giannis who he is is the fact that he's seven foot tall, has a massive wingspan and all that, and Zion doesn't have that. But I think... If you look at just strictly how he scores, I think that's kind of the player that we're talking about. Yeah, I, I don't think that you're far off from that. I, th I think some some combination of Giannis and Charles Barkley and a, he's like a six foot six Shaquille O'Neal with the way that that nobody can really bang with that guy down low. Giannis is the reigning MVP. When is Zion Williamson going to join in that MVP conversation? How how long before we get there? Because I, I think we both agree that like it's not a matter of when, it's a matter of if with this guy. Look, the no if you just look at the per 36-minute numbers he's putting up this season, prior to this season, since 2000, you're basically looking at guys like Giannis, Anthony Davis, Joel Embiid, James Harden, Russell Westbrook, Kevin Durant, and DeMarcus Cousins. Like These are bonafide all-stars some of them mvp players mvp candidates i health is obviously going to be a huge concern with him but i think if he can stay healthy which is a big if i think 
I wouldn't be surprised if he makes a similar jump that like Luca did this year to the point where, you know, the Pelicans are the fifth or sixth seed in the West next season. Zion's putting up 25 and 8, 25 and 10 every single night. And he's a pretty clear MVP candidate. I don't know if he's going to be one and two. Like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I'm going to stop. You, you just said, do you? So you think he's next year, as in we're, we're in February of next season. I don't know how many games into the year that'll be. Nobody does. But we're, you're said we're right now. We are going to be having a conversation of is Zion an MVP contender in year two? I would not be surprised if we're talking about him being on the ballot. I, I don't think next year necessarily he's going to be a real MVP candidate. And again, in the same sense that like Giannis and LeBron are the one and two this sure, year and there's yeah. a huge drop off. But I wouldn't be shocked if we're talking about him being in the four, five, six, that kind of range, just because of the impact he's already making, the numbers he's already putting up and how good the Pelicans could be if he can stay healthy. I'm, I'm just happy that you fully converted. Fully. I, I am all there. Because we talked about it before the season. I, I'll even say it. You said that Zion would be an all-star this year. And I, I laughed in your face 100%. prior to the season. I was like, there's no way the West is way too stacked. He's a rookie. He's going to have his, his ups and downs. I just don't see it. And, and I think it's pretty clear. Had he played this level at the start of the season and been healthy, he would have been an all-star this year. There's no yeah, doubt he, about that. He, he has unequivocally been one of the 24 best players uh, in the NBA this season. But uh, but you already knew that if you're listening to NBA Sound System because you are the smartest basketball minds and fans out there. All right, let's switch gears a little bit. Uh, a lot of talk of Zion, of course. But there's another rookie, one that is more than likely going to win Rookie of the Year. And I guess let's just start it, let's just start it with that. Is John Morant still the Rookie of the Year to you? Even though we just spent about 15 minutes talking about how incredible Zion is, (laughs) John Morant right now is the rookie of the year. I have him pretty comfortably at number one. I think the only way realistically that Zion could be rookie of the year is if he plays basically every single game from the rest of the season out. So about 30 games he finished the season with and the Pelicans make the playoffs. I just... If they don't, if he doesn't do that and they don't make the playoffs over the Grizzlies, I just don't think it's discussion because from start to finish, you have to take the whole body of work into consideration. And I think I'm someone who thinks that rookie of the year doesn't matter as much what happens in the season. And I, I think there's more of an argument to be made about you can give the rookie of the year award to who you think is the better player. But when you only play 30 games, I think it's even if even with that in mind, I think it's really hard to give it to someone unless they do something like put up the monster numbers that Zion is doing and you can see a clear impact on them making the playoffs. Yeah, look, I'm not going to sit here and be naive and say, I don't understand why this is even a conversation because I get it. Zion's been that great. He's spectacular. He's electric. Uh, the ratings the ratings would agree with that. Social media would agree with that. And oh, by the way, the box score and the standings would agree with that too. He certainly warranted it. Uh, but I do think it is a little bit of a being a prisoner of the moment uh, and being a little bit disrespectful to the year that John Morant was having because, make I mean, this is not like a case of Joel Embiid playing 31 games should he win Rookie of the Year. You know, with no disrespect to Malcolm Brogdon, um, John Morant is not having a rookie season like Malcolm Brogdon is. John Morant is having a legitimate Rookie of the Year caliber season, regardless of who else is in the conversation. Um, and, you know, I, I actually don't even think that it's that it's a lock that if Zion was healthy this entire year, I think he'd be the favorite. But I don't even think it'd be, like, ridiculous to suggest that if Zion would have been healthy from day one and Memphis was still ahead of New Orleans in the standings, 
I don't think it's crazy to suggest that it would still be Ja over Zion. I think he's been that good. So here's the thing. The, the Embiid one, the Embiid-Brogdon race is what jumped out to me as well. And it's easy to forget. Embiid finished third in Rookie of the Year voting yeah. behind Brogdon and Darius Arch that year. And it felt like there was so much made during that time about whether or not he would be Rookie of the Year. And it wasn't particularly close. Um, and even off of that, there's only two, the least amount of games someone has played in one Rookie of the Year in NBA history is 50. It was done by Patrick Ewing and Vince Carter. But Carter did it in a lockout shortened season. So we're really only talking Patrick Ewing here. That's just, I mean, he's not going to play 50 games. It would be something like 33, I think, if he played the rest of the games this season out. And it's just really hard to give it to someone like that. And to your point, Jaws just been incredible. I mean, Gil McGregor and I were talking about it the other day for an article on, on NBA.com. It's easy to forget, too, that the Grizzlies, I think the over-under coming into the season was like 23 games. There were only two teams that were expected to, to win less games than them this season. And they're hovering around 500. They're in the eighth seed in the Western Conference, which we thought would be an absolute bloodbath this year. And it's just a testament to how far along he already is, how great of a leader he is, how complete his skill set is. I mean, he's averaging about 18, 18 points and seven assists per game. The only two active players in the league who put up numbers like that as a rookie is Damian Lillard and Trey Young. And I think we had a discussion the other day, too. You have to go back pretty much to Chris Paul to find the last time that like a point guard really led their team to the playoffs like Jaws doing this season. Um, so I, I agree with you. you. You know, even though all the things that we just said about Zion, it's not like we're just uh, like the fact that he didn't play enough games. We just hand it to Jaw that way. Like Jaw ja has deservedly put himself in the number one position and will probably win rookie of the year. Yeah. And, and look, so Zion, may, Zion Williamson makes his debut on January 22nd, right? Almost halfway through the middle of the year, that same very night, John Morant goes one of five from the field, scores only two points. His team gets blown out in Boston. Uh, you know, so even there from the jump, Zion has this amazing debut. And on that same night, John Morant has probably his worst game of the year. Up until that point, here's what he had been doing. 18 points a game, seven assists, over one steal, 49% from the field, over 40% from three, and shooting 80% from the line. He was ridiculous over a stretch of 37 games before Zion Williamson ever even stepped foot on the floor. So I think that it's it's really important to keep that in mind when we're when we talk about things like rookie of the year. But I also don't want the rookie of the year conversation to necessarily take away from just talking about how special Ja is. You know, for, forget Zion Williamson for a minute. Forget the rookie of the year race. Let's just talk about specifically what makes him amazing. I, look, you watch him play. He he might already be the fastest end-to-end player in the league. And if he's not the fastest, man, he's right there in the conversation. What is it to you that stands out about John Morant that makes him so special to watch? It's definitely his, his speed and explosiveness first. But I, just to me, just how complete his game already is. I, it wasn't like he came into the NBA with, with a broken jump shot or anything. But I remember that being one of the biggest concerns with him. And to this point of the season, he's shooting 35% on pull-up threes, which is a really good mark uh, for a first-year point guard. He's shooting 42% on catch-and-shoot threes. That's elite. He's shooting 41% from mid-range, and he's made he's shooting about 50% on floaters, which is, makes up the majority of his scoring. It's like his go-to shot, these little floaters just outside the paint. And he, he's already capable of scoring in so many ways. He puts so much pressure on defenses because he can get downhill with his speed and athleticism. And he's, he's a much better passer than I think people give him credit for. I don't necessarily think he's ever going to be 
you know, leading the league and with, with assists, like 12 assists a game. I don't know if he's at that Trey Young, Luka Doncic level, but he's a guy who's going to punish you if you load off on him and find open players. And the Grizzlies have already done a pretty good job of surrounding him with young players, guys who complement his skill set when we talk about, um, you know, Brandon Clark and things like that. So I think not only does he have a really high ceiling and upside and everything like that, I think this Grizzlies team is going to be really good in the years to come. Well, what? yeah, I, I agree with you in the passing. And, and I want to get to the passing in a minute, but you talked a little bit about the shooting. And it's one, one of the things that I wanted to dig into a little bit because I do think that there is this sort of, I, I don't even know if it's a it, narrative doesn't feel like the right word, but people do talk about John Morant as someone that maybe isn't a dangerous shot maker off the bounce or he's not in the same conversation as a Damian Lillard or a Steph Curry or Trey Young and maybe or and maybe he'll never get there but so you know he's shooting 37% from 3 at about two and a half attempts per game if you take away the ones very late in the shot clock so the desperation the balls in his hands he's got to get something up He's only three of 20 on shots with four seconds or fewer left on the shot clock. You remove those from the equation, he's up over 40%. He's also been very smart. And I think that this is one of the indicators of a player that's young, sort of learning on the fly and being able to handle uh, just how much thought processing you have to do uh, as an NBA level point guard. Just five of his 139 attempts from three this year have come within a defender have come with a defender within four feet. Conversely, 98 of them have been deemed wide open. He's not forcing the issue. This is not a situation like Trey Young in his rookie year, where he basically had no consequences, an endless leash, and the green light to basically do whatever the hell he wanted to at every moment. This is a player that's been calculated from day one. I think you threw out the Chris Paul thing earlier. Chris Paul only shot 28% from three as a rookie. You know, we don't talk about Chris Paul as among those point guards with broken jump shots or whatever, but John Morant is already a significantly better uh, shooter from range than Chris Paul was at a similar age. And, you know, he obviously became a very adept and skillful shooter uh, and shot maker later in his career. So I think that John Morant has shown patience and a feel for the game that goes beyond anything we would ever remotely expect from a rookie point guard who, who does he remind you of because for me so I, I talked to him pretty early in the season when when the Grizzlies came to Charlotte and, and I read a lot about him going into that and he says he's kind of uh how he he kind of takes things from Russell Westbrook like that's his favorite player and he said he he didn't try to play like him or anything but he, he likes the way that he plays aggressively and to me, I see that. Like when he when he gets out in transition, he has a lot of Westbrook in him. Like he, he puts his head down, he goes up strong, he's super athletic. But I also think he kind of has a little De'Aaron Fox in him, super fast from end to end. Um, kind of like a like scores in very similar ways, a similar pass and things like that. So to me, those are the two guys that kind of stand out to me when I think of who he compares well to. Although I do kind of think he he is his own player. Like we haven't really seen. Um, I mean, maybe John Wall is another comparison when we think of a guy who's kind of kind of lanky, point guard position, can do a little bit of everything. But Ja, I think, is going to be a much better shooter than John Wall ever was. Um, so it's going to be interesting to see the kind of play that he develops into. The the one that I I think I come I come back to I think that Ja Morant is a mix. Well, you're right in the sense that he's his own guy, right? We I think sometimes we go down the comparison rabbit hole a little bit too quickly versus letting guys just be themselves. 
I kind of think that he's a mix between early Derrick Rose and late Derrick Rose in the sense that he's got all the athleticism and explosion and he gets downhill and his ability to drive to the basket uh, and finish, I think is very Rose-esque. And he's got bunnies uh, that even Derrick Rose, I don't think had. But he's also a much better shooter than Derrick Rose was, even when he was in his prime winning MVPs. I think the what we've seen Derrick Rose sort of remake himself here this last year and a half as a capable and willing three-point shooter when able to is I, I think John Morant's already at that point. I also think he's a better passer uh, than he than than Rose, and, and that's where I think some of that John Wall stuff. Uh, comes into play. I think he's he's got a little bit uh, better vision and feel for the game than, than probably Derrick Rose did. But Rose is sort of the guy that I gravitate to. And I think that maybe, you know, who knows what we would have seen from Derrick Rose had he never gotten hurt. And maybe we're about to find out the answer to that uh, with who John Morant becomes. Yeah, I think that's actually a good comparison. And I think the takeaway from this is that he really is his own player because we I think we just threw out like five names combined do you know what I mean um and and the way that he's kind of picked things up from these different players and add it to add it to his own game like you, you can see all of it you can see some of Wall you can see some of Rhodes you can see some of Westbrook when he plays um he, he's an incredible talent I think we I want to say it was a, a few weeks ago on NBA.com we did we did a list of who we think are going to be the top 10 players in five years time and I, I think Zion finished, I want to say, fourth on our list. And I think Ja yeah. was seventh. Um, so we, across the board, we're all very high on both of them and think they're going to be, you know, potential MVP candidates within the next five, five, ten years. I couldn't agree more. I think, uh, and there's a world in which Ja Morant is the best player in the league in five years. Do I think that is going to happen? No, I don't. Uh, but there is a world in which that happens. But look, I think that the... The consensus is that Zion Williamson and John ja Morant are the two best players from this draft. That's certainly been the case, uh, you know, through year one. Will most likely be the case long term. But there's one other name I want to get to here because I think that if you were to if you were to sort of play out the next five years a hundred times, I'm willing to suggest that 99 of those 100, either Zion or Ja, would be the best player. I do think that there is a sliver of chance in there that somebody else slides through. And I think you and I are thinking of the same player. Are we thinking of the same player? We, we are definitely, we're definitely thinking of the same player. I, I'm guessing you're talking about Michael Porter Jr. I am definitely talking about Michael Porter Jr. When we, when we did the aforementioned list of who are going to be the NBA's best players in five years. And I think we had like, I have nine or ten different people submit their top tens. I would love to say that I was the only person that declared Michael Porter Jr. would be one of the ten best players in the NBA in five years. I had him at number ten. I think he's going to be great. You are the only one. Um, which, which was, I mean, I, I honestly didn't even think about him. I, I came into the season. You know me. I was very low on him coming to the season. I was worried about the back injuries that he had in college, the fact that he had to have surgery again last year and miss his whole rookie season. I was very skeptical of Michael Porter Jr. But after about is this, this is this cathartic for you? Just admitting that you were wrong about Michael Porter Jr. and Zion Williamson in one podcast? It is, but I feel good. You know, it, I, I think it's important that you can you know admit <laughs> to your mistakes and learn from them. And I'm trying my best to do that. There we go. Um, well, keep keep trying your best. I want to hear why you've uh, done a 180 on on Michael Porter. 
it's just he's one of those guys you watch him just a couple possessions and, and the talent is just obvious it's max you in the face like he he's a super smooth scorer uh he's already a really good shooter he's made 41.3 percent of his catch and shoot threes this season so when when we're thinking about his fit in denver moving forward i think he he slides in perfectly next to Nikola Jokic in the front court because he is a guy who can shoot he's also one of the most efficient scores off of cuts this season he's shown that he's a very willing cutter um when he's locked in which is obviously really important when you have a guy like Jokic on your team who's arguably the best passing center of all time so i think just that just those two things the fact that he can shoot threes he can shoot a little bit off of the off the bounce and he's a great cutter i think that that gives him a high, a pretty high floor for this nuggets team now you think of the fact that he's he's a very skilled score with the ball in his hands and he's only going to get better he's only going to get more opportunities in that regard if he reaches his potential like that i mean he's going to be easily a 20 point plus scorer in the league a guy who can do it efficiently i think he's going to be someone that denver can go mismatch hunting with a guy who's going to you know either set a screen on jamal murray to force a switch and break a guy a small guy down in the post or set a screen for Jokic and break a bigger guy off of the uh, at the top of the perimeter I just think he he has such a high ceiling because of what he could be able to do with the ball in his hands as a scorer. And that's obviously, you know, he, he's going to improve as a passer. Hopefully he'll improve as a defender. So his all-around game could be pretty solid. But I just think he has such a, a good opportunity to be a really special scorer, which is what the Nuggets need. See, you, you started that, Salvo, talking about how he he raises Denver's floor, but then you mentioned at the end, started talking about ceilings. And I think ceiling is the most important word when it comes to talking about Michael Porter Jr. Because you look at this Denver team as currently constructed. I love Nikola Jokic. I think he is, if not the best center in the league, uh, unequivocally one of the three best centers in the league. Would have finished in the top five MVP race again this year. Still, still might. Who knows how how that voting will end up looking with everything going on. But I do have significant questions about whether Nikola Jokic, just with his style of play, what he does well, uh, what you really need to close out tight games, uh, you know, when when the proverbial, you know, what hits the fan. I do have questions about whether or not he can be the best player on a championship winning team. And I think that Michael Porter Jr., uh, has the skill set to sort of be the shot creator, shot hunter for a team, the kind of guy that you give the ball to in the last five seconds and say, go get yours no matter what. No matter what we're shown defensively, nobody can stop a 6'10 guy with, uh, you know, with range that can shoot off the bounce going to either side. I don't know. what Do you think that Denver ultimately, if you were to give Denver truth serum, do you think that they want Michael Porter Jr. to be their best player like three years from now? I, I think they want him to be their best scorer. I, I still think Jokic is going to be their best player just because of how much of the offensive load he carries when you think of as a scorer, post-up scorer, a guy who can space the floor a little bit at the center position and just how much offense they run through him. Like At the, at the end of the day, they're still going to run so much offense through him because, I, I mean, I think he's the best passing center of all time. I, I don't think there's much of a debate there. So you have to maximize that, and I think they will. So I think it's more about a discussion of whether or not Michael Porter Jr. can be like their number one scorer because right now that's Jamal Murray. And, and I really like Jamal Murray, but I think he's just a little too inconsistent to be that big time crunch time score that they need especially in the playoffs and he had a pretty good uh, postseason last year but i think to your point if you have a 6'10 guy who can basically do 
score in every way that you can imagine. I mean, that's something that every single team in this league wants. And I, I think, you know, again, this is a guy who could quite easily lead the Nuggets in scoring with in two or three years' time. And if he becomes that kind of player, I think Denver's going to have um, one of, if not the best, one, two, like one, two, three trio, however you want to put it in the league, just because yeah, they're all Den- so young like- and they're so talented. Yeah, and Denver fancies its chances as a contender sooner rather than later. Uh, I do think so. It, it, you know, if you look at like I think it's game tying and go ahead shots in the last ten seconds since the start of last season. I believe Nikola Jokic actually leads the NBA in that. If you actually go watch them. It is ugly. Denver runs some really ugly offense and relies on things that, quite frankly, I think are just simply unreliable. If you look at what they've done this season, they are eighth in clutch time offensive efficiency, and they've actually also assisted on almost two-thirds of their made baskets in the clutch. Now, over the course of a season, over the course of a 48-minute game, I think you know high assist numbers are great. I actually think that's a detriment and says a lot about your inability to create and generate and manufacture your own offense when you're relying on so much ball movement to get buckets late in games. And that's where I think Michael Porter Jr. is the ultimate long-term sort of ceiling raiser. If he can kind of become that guy, I think that all of a sudden changes the conversation about Denver because Currently, as currently constructed, I don't think a two-man game of Jamal Murray and Nikola Jokic is going to really scare any of the big boys uh, come playoff time. Yeah, I, I think I think Jamal Murray could be the number two that they need. I don't think he will, and I think just Michael Porter Jr. makes more sense as that number two. And then if you have Jamal Murray as your third option, uh, that's pretty terrifying because he can play on ball, he can play off ball, he's a good pick-and-roll scorer, things like that. He's also a good cutter. So I, I just think they... That, that's why I, I hope he can stay healthy. I hope Michael Porter Jr. can stay healthy because he has the potential to just kind of tie everything together perfectly in Denver if he does reach its potential. Well, here's to good health, not just from Michael Porter Jr., but also Zion Williamson and John Morant. Whether it's injury history, style of play, a combination of, uh, of everything it is, it's, it's a little bit tenuous that all three of these guys kind of have their own uh, injury concerns, if you will, but... I want to move. I want to move forward now and, and move on to some of some of maybe the lesser hilded guys and more of a rapid fire session. Give me first one rookie you're looking at and uh, and one reason why uh, that that he sort of grabbed grabbed your attention. Already mentioned him. Also plays for the Grizzlies. It's Brandon Clark. Just one stat for you to throw out there. He ranks in the 95th percentile this season as a scoring as the role man with 1.48 points per, per possession, which is outrageous. And those those plays make up about a quarter of his offense. And he's already just a, a very versatile scorer as a role man. Uh, he he can he's shown that he can hit some jump shots. He can finish around the rim. He's super athletic. But there's also a lot of talk about him having the best floater um, among all the big men in the league already. And uh, he's 27 for 54 in floaters this year, according to NBA.com. And he just has a really soft touch around the basket. Um, so obviously, Jaron Jackson is the big guy um, in the Grizzlies' future. He's super talented, the 3 and D guy that you want, the versatile defender. But having a guy like Brendan Clark, whether he starts alongside um, in the front court in the future or as a backup, uh, it's just, it was just such a good pickup by that franchise. 
Shout out to uh, to Jonathan Charks and a couple others. I believe that Brandon Clark uh, was either like number one on his draft board or number one in one of their uh, their draft projection ratings. There, look a lot a lot of the nerds online, and we are two of them. So I, I mean that in a in a in a good way as a compliment. A lot of the draft nerds were really high on Brandon Clark uh, before he ever you know stepped foot on the court for the Memphis Grizzlies. Uh, certainly a name to watch. One of mine uh, that has started to come into the forefront a little bit more. I venture to guess that there's a lot of people out there who still don't know who this guy is. Lukens Dort uh, on Oklahoma City uh, is starting to fill the void, and it's calling it a void does a disservice. It is a cataclysm. It is an abyss. Whatever the whatever the big missing vacuum on the wing there in Oklahoma City is, Lukens Dort is, is someone that is, is starting to fill that gap a little bit. And defensively, he's really uh, taken on the challenge of guarding the other team's best players. And that's not just eye test. The numbers pointed to the same. Shout out to my guy, Krishna Narsu, who's a contributor for Nylon Calculus. Does a lot of really good stuff using, using the available matchup data and then turning that into, into even more useful things. He has Lukens Dort guarding the other team's number one offensive option 41% of the time. That is by far the uh, highest percentage of time spent guarding other great players in the entire league. So he is certainly taking on the challenge there in Oklahoma City. And by the way, for a team that really needs it, right, they are at their best when it's Chris Paul, when it's Dennis Schroeder, when it's Shea Gilders-Alexander. They need somebody with size to do something positive. Uh, out there on the floor. And Lou Dort has been a revelation since Billy Donovan has sort of uh, unleashed him a little bit with the regulars there in Oklahoma. It's funny. I was watching one of uh, OKC's games at the end of last month, and there was a play that jumped out to me in the second quarter that Lou Gensdort made. And and it just, I think it encapsulated just the player that he is perfectly right now. So the possession starts. He picks off off of a steal, um, forces a turnover, takes it down the other end of court, and misses a layup in transition that's, that's somewhat contested. They don't get the ball. Denver gets the ball. And he just sprints back, chases down the ball, gets another steal, dives on the floor, passes to Steven Adams. He gets back up, and then he runs back to the offensive end, gets an offensive rebound, and then gets blocked at the rim by Nikola Jokic. So he misses the two shots that he takes in that sequence, but he comes up with two steals, and he's just a bat out of hell, just running one end of the court to the other, to half court, back up, attacking the glass. He just brings so much energy. And to your point, he might not... I mean, he's not a very good scorer right now, which is hilarious because that's what he did in college. He was the scorer. Um, So the fact that he's already just this this defensive-minded guy... He's going to get deflections. He's going to get steals. He's going to bring that energy. Um, it, it is incredible how much of an impact he's already made. And to think that he's on a two-way contract, um, you know, I, I think it's safe to say that he's earned a place in OKC uh, with his play so far this season. I agree. I, I think, you know, if he can become a better scorer, I know, I know he was his team's number one option in college at Arizona State, averaged over 16 points a game, did shoot just 40% in college, including 30% from the college three-point line. He has yet to really show an ability to do that on the NBA level, but I do think that there is the potential here for maybe not this year, maybe not maybe not even next year, but in a couple of years, we could be talking about somebody that is the, the prototypical kind of wing that every good team in the league uh, is searching for endlessly. You can never have too many of those guys. All right, Sky, give me one more guy who you're kind of focusing in on. One guy, one other guy I'm focusing in on is RJ Barrett. Uh, 
This stat is not as positive. He's shooting 53.4% in the restricted area this season. There are 145 players who have attempted at least 150 shots in the restricted area. Barrett ranks 134th in efficiency. Um, it's not great. That's not good. That's not, not good. It's not good. And, and this was a little bit of a concern of his coming into the NBA. He's a great player in transition and everything like that. But I know, I know people were concerned about his ability to score in half court. And, and he's a guy that needs the ball in his hands to be effective, but he's not a very good off-ball player. So if he can't be an efficient score with the ball in his hands and he can't finish at the rim, which is supposed to be his strength, um, that makes him a complicated player to build around. So I, I think, you know, when, when you watch the tape of the, the shots that he's taken in the restricted area, he is very left-hand dominant. Um, he's not very explosive in traffic, so he doesn't get very, uh, very up very high. He doesn't finish over guys and everything like that in the rim. But he does have a good touch. He's very uh, herky-jerky. I, I, I think he's going to improve in that regard. I don't know if it's, you know, we'll see more signs of it at the end of the season if the, if the season does resume. I don't know if we'll see it next season. But I am optimistic that he can improve on that. And, and let's be honest, he has to improve on that if he's going to live up to the hype of where he's drafted and the player that the Knicks really need him to be. Yeah, it's... It's tough because on one hand, everything that's going on in New York, it's it's you kind of just have to take everything, especially with young players, with such a grain of salt. And yet at the same time, those same concerns, which you just highlighted, the the lack of verti- verti- vertical explosion and the ability to finish inside and through contact and, and really the reliance and going heavy and going left and only left, those were all things that... that uh, were red flags at Duke as well. So uh, I'm right there with you. I, I have some some cause for concern with RJ Bear, but hopefully, um, you know, hopefully that those end up being just being growing pains uh, as a rookie. The other guy that I'm sort of very curious, uh, curious about, and I would love to get your thoughts on, is Eric Pascal uh, and Golden State. Because, look, this is somewhat of a lost season for the Warriors with, Losing Durant and Steph Curry's been out. Uh, just recently came back. Clay Thompson's missing the entire year. Uh, they had the the big D'Angelo Russell for Andrew Wiggins swap. So really, it's just sort of a hey, let's just get everyone healthy so we can make another run at it. But Pascal has been one of uh, one of sort of the probably the brightest spot in Golden State in terms of uh, finding talent, finding someone that can sort of fit in with everyone, and he's been at his best. Uh, playing as a power forward. Now, over the course of uh, of a 48-minute game, over the course of a season, there are certainly concerns about his ability needing to play power forward, being able to fit alongside Draymond Green. However, I think we would probably both agree that Golden State, at its best, moving forward, will still be with looks with Draymond at the five. And if Golden State returns to a team that could win the NBA title next year, there's going to be times when they have Steph, Clay, Draymond, and Andrew Wiggins out there. They're going to need to find a fifth guy. I'm wondering to you, did they just find their fifth guy if they want to contend for a title next year? It's possible. I, I will say that the fact that he's shooting 29% from three, you put that next to Draymond Green, and then you put that next to Andrew Wiggins, who has never been a great three-point shooter in his NBA career. As good of shooters as Steph and Clay are, that doesn't leave a ton of spacing uh, around the basket and things like that. But if you if you think that Andrew Wiggins can be a better three-point shooter once he gets easier shots next to Steph and Clay, maybe Draymond's shooting picks up a little bit. 
Um, maybe Pascal, maybe his, maybe he's a better three-point shooter next season when he's getting even more space. Uh, I, I do think that would help. And that, that's obviously the biggest thing that's holding this Warriors team back right now because they're very top-heavy when you talk of Steph Curry, Clay Thompson, Andrew Wiggins, and Draymond Green, four guys who are making more than $20 million next season. After that, Kevon Looney's their highest-paid player at $4.8 million. Um, and, yeah. and you just look at the rest of their roster. They obviously they have a trade exception. They're going to get a guy in the draft this year with, with a high draft pick, um, which we can only assume will be a high draft pick and everything like that. But I do think there is room for a fifth or sixth guy to kind of pop on this team, and they really need that. And I think what he's shown this season is that he could be that player or he's at least trending in that direction. Yeah, I, I more so said it from the from the lens of not necessarily that I'm all in, buying him, buy all the stock you can get now, more so just sort of like a curiosity of, hey, like this guy might be somebody that's on everyone's television in big, important games next year. He's somebody uh, of this rookie class uh, that's certainly worth paying attention to just because of the role that he might be asked to play on a team that just might be there next year. Yeah, it's, it's absolutely possible. He's been really impressive this season um, in the tricky circumstances with, with Golden State and everything like that. And obviously, playing next to Steph and Clay, I, ju- I just said, you know, they need it'd be better if they're surrounded by more three point shooters because it gives them more space to work. But those two guys, Steph and Clay, just draw so much attention and have so much gravity that it does make life so much easier for everyone else. So if you talk about a guy like Eric Pascal, if he can hit threes, he's shown that he can score around the rim. He brings a lot of energy. There is a really good chance that he will fit in really well next to them next season. Well, regardless of his role, the Golden State Warriors next season, uh, certainly something that I cannot wait to see. I was uh, as big a fan of any as the Warriors pre-Durant. I think people forgot how much fun that team uh, has the potential to be when everyone's healthy and on the floor. Of course, right now we are focused on everybody, not just NBA players, but everybody listening at home. Even if you're not listening here, get healthy, stay safe. Uh, eventually the NBA will return. When it does, uh, we'll be the first here right now to, to talk through all the fun and exciting storylines with you. Uh, but in the meantime, we'll be here on NBA Sound System every week, multiple times, uh, filling the airs and the hours with talking points and storylines and players and teams and hot takes and debates and all that and more. Uh, so for Scott, I'm Micah. Thanks for tuning in to NBA Sound System for all of our rookie talk. We'll catch you next time.